Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Each week as we look at God's Word, the Bible, and we're going through this series uh, this semester on the Gospel of John. We're calling it, Who is the Real Jesus? And so we're highlighting some of these key passages in John's Gospel that uh, give us insight into who Jesus is and specifically how life is found in his name. Yeah, it's a good-sized passage there. Um, and um, tonight's passage is a Probably the most famous passage in the Bible, maybe. Uh, If you've ever memorized a Bible verse before, it was probably John 3.16. And, um, you know, a lot of times studying the Bible is a lot like warming up for a sport. Anybody play sports, like, growing up or something like that? And I'm always, I, I did growing up, and I'm always amazed at how, like, professional athletes do the same warm-up drills that I did when I was like eight years old you know so like uh, NBA players do layup drills which is like what every kid learns to do or like I watched the World Cup of soccer this summer which was awesome except that Brazil didn't win and uh, but uh, same thing right they just kind of kick the ball around in a triangle and one person in the middle like maybe you did at soccer practice uh, sometime and the reason for that is that there are some things that are so fundamental Uh, that you can never get enough of them. Uh, And as a Christian, uh, this passage, there's a reason why it's the most famous passage, the most memorized verse, and it's because it's so fundamental. And so my hope in reading it tonight is that uh, it will feed us, whether it's your thousandth time reading it or your first. Uh, So let's read it together. Uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one can ascend into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Uh, Let's pray one more time. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come now to this text and pray that you would guide us through it, that you would, uh, whether it's an old one or a new one to us, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and change us through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure what's going on over there, but it's okay. Try to tune it out. Um, okay, so we're talking about tonight this idea of being born again. And I don't know how that term strikes you or what associations you have with it. It's a term that's been for, used in a lot of different ways. It has some political connotations now. It, uh, for a while, it meant like, are you, a, are you a Christian or are you a born-again Christian? Like, are you serious or have you like, experienced something And uh, there's a lot of ways in which uh, it's kind of thrown around that term, but uh, it's a term that Jesus used. And being born again is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And so what I want to look at tonight is what does it mean, you know, to be born again? And we're going to look at it in four ways tonight. Uh, We're going to look at why we need it, uh, the necessity of it, uh, what it means, and then the way to be born again and the result of being born again as we see it in this Uh, passage, this interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And so first of all, let's think about the necessity of being born again. Uh, At the beginning of our passage, it says that Jesus has been doing, like up until this point, some amazing miracles and signs. Uh, He has turned water into wine at this point. And it seems like the people who have seen him doing signs and amazing things are kind of loving the show, but missing the point of them. Does that make sense? So they're kind of just like, Jesus attracts crowds, but they're there more for the spectacle. Uh, Yet there's this one guy, this ruler of the Jews, this religious leader, Nicodemus, who, it says, comes to Jesus by night. It's an interesting uh, detail that John includes. And uh, some people have thought, you know, maybe he was kind of like being sneaky. Maybe he didn't want anyone to know. Like he's kind of hiding. But uh, there's a lot of light and dark imagery here in this text and in all of John. And what John's probably trying to show us is that this is a man who's coming, who, although he's a religious leader, is in spiritual darkness. And he wants some answers, though. And so he approaches Jesus and he says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do this amazing stuff. And Jesus' response is odd, right? Did you find it odd? He said, to that question, he says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And it's kind of like, what? Like, How does that even relate to what was just said? Uh, And I want you to think about what do you think Nicodemus wanted to hear Jesus say in response? Uh, You know, Nicodemus probably wanted Jesus to say something like, you're right, Nicodemus. I am from God, and you can be in with me. Like, you're the only one who gets it. You can be in. Like, we can be, like, you know, on top of the mountain together, right? That's, like, what Nicodemus is probably going for. And uh, instead, uh, 
Jesus kind of obliterates that idea. Now I have no idea what's going on over there. Let's take a moment. They're like moving furniture. Okay, we're going to press through. Tune out the distractions. Um, yeah, so Nicodemus came from a Jewish tradition where they had this, like, they were expecting a king to come. Nicodemus was expecting a king to come. And in the Bible, it talks about a day when a king would come. But at that time, Nicodemus's idea and the general kind of view is like, there's going to be a time when the king comes. And finally, like us as the Jewish people are going to have our place and everyone else is going to be gone. Like it's going to be about us winning and everyone else losing. And Jesus obliterates that idea here And the reason, the way he obliterates it is he says, you know what, Nicodemus, like religious leader guy, like guy that everyone would view highly, you need to be born again. Like think about the significance of Jesus saying that to this, like this wasn't like some poor beggar. This was a religious, like the top of the top religious leader of the day. And he says, you're not enough. You need to be born again. Uh, This is, you know, think about the idea of like doing layup drills, right? Like, if Nicodemus needs to be born again, then certainly everyone does. Just like if like NBA basketball players need to do layup drills, and also like six-year-old kids need to be doing layup drills. Uh, and Nicodemus shows here that he's still in darkness because he doesn't get it, right? In verse 4, he's like, can we enter into the womb again? And that's where we come to the meaning of being born again. So uh, Jesus answers... Nicodemus's question by saying, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, what's the water about, right? Uh, spirit makes sense, and people have wondered what the water means. Some people think, oh, it must be talking about baptism, or other people are like, you know, in physical birth, like, you, you know, like your water breaks, and there's amniotic fluid involved. Maybe it's talking about that. No. Uh, Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to consider something in the Bible that he already knows. Uh, In the Bible, there's a passage in Ezekiel, surely he would know it, where God promises Israel, he says, I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. That's the promise that God was, had always been holding out to this people. And Jesus is drawing on the whole story, this guy's whole heritage, Israel's story, God's people, um, the story of how they came to this point. Uh, when I was in college, I had a friend who had a car. I did not have a car my first semester, and I had this friend with a car. It was great. Uh, but his car was kind of a clunker. Not really. It was fine, but it was this old, kind of older Ford Explorer and we, me and my friends always used to give him a hard time because every time he went to fill out for gas, he had to get this like big oil jug out of his trunk and like add a little oil to his engine because his oil, his engine leaked oil. And it was the kind of thing where the car was old, it wasn't worth like fixing, the amount you would spend to fix the problem would be like so expensive that it was just easier to like every... He had to do this like walk of shame every time he filled up his gas where he like, you know, lifted the hood and like got his funnel out and like added some oil to his car, to his engine. And I want you to think about that. Like that's the history of God's people. If you look, if you read through the Bible, what you'll see over and over again is that there's all these new beginnings 
that don't fix the ultimate problem yet. You know, so one of the first stories in the Bible is, you know, the world gets really bad and wicked, and then no, there's a story of Noah and his family in the ark, right? And it's this new start where God starts new. But the problem is, uh, Noah and his family weren't like fundamentally that different from everyone else, and so uh, the world is not fixed yet at that point. And then later on, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, but then God rescues them and brings them to the promised land, and it's this new start, but guess what? They end up acting just like all the other nations around them, and it goes on and on, all these new starts, and uh, the problem is, though, that what Israel needed was a whole new engine. What God's people needed was not to just keep on getting these new starts, but to be totally transformed. I want you to think about that idea of why we seek out a temporary fix rather than that full transformation. Uh, or another way to think of this, how could, like, Ezekiel read that pass, or Nicodemus read that passage in Ezekiel about, like, you need a new heart, you need to be sprinkled clean with water, and why would he miss this big idea And I think the reason is because we have a sense that the new birth is very costly and our pride makes us seek temporary fixes instead. And what that looks like, I think, for us here is that we localize our problems elsewhere instead of in here. So we say, you know what, my family is the problem. Or my parents are the problem. You know, my my real problem is, uh, like, my finances. You know, once those get figured out, I'll be fine. Or my lack of a significant other is the problem. Or, you know, I don't have my, my career figured out yet. That's my problem. And what you need to see is that Jesus takes all those things very seriously. But in the end, he says, nope, your heart is the problem. You're the problem. And it should be abundantly clear that being born again, it, it doesn't make our difficulties go away. But it does change the way we face difficulties. And if you're here today and you really can't face difficulties... Uh, without, you know, turning to some quick fix or some other thing to get you through. You know, maybe you need to be born again. Or maybe you are born again and you're just not accessing the uh, new life that you have. Maybe you are born again, but you're kind of still adding oil to the engine, even though you don't need to anymore. Um, So what's the essence of the new birth then? Think about the new birth. What is it? It's a birth, right? What is a birth? I am, you know, I've, anybody been to a birth before? (laughs) I've been to two, my two children's births. And uh, let me tell you, I almost passed out at the most recent one. About a year and a half, a year and a half ago tomorrow. Tomorrow is my son's year and a half birthday. Half birthday. And uh, so a year and a half ago, I almost passed out at the birth of my son. And, uh, but uh, one thing you learn if you go to a birth, and it's kind of obvious, even if you haven't been to one, is that when you're born, you don't do anything. Like, you do nothing to be born. Like, it's called labor, and the baby is not laboring, right? Like, the mom is laboring, and the baby, like, literally can't move, and it's just kind of being born. You don't do it. And I want you to think about that in terms of what Jesus is talking about here. Because people hate this idea. You know, people say, no, you have to believe. You have to be a good person. You have to do something. No. Any believing you do, anything that you do that's truly good, 
is a result of being born again. It's the result of being freed from slavery. Uh, What truly determines what's good and whether you're one of God's people is the state of your heart. And Jesus talks about it in in that verse 8 there. Maybe you found it a little strange, the part about the wind blowing where it pleases, but that's what it's talking about. Like God is the one who makes new birth happen. We can't make it happen for ourselves. And there's this mysterious element to it, right? Uh, We see it, you know the story of Jesus on the cross between two criminals? Both criminals, both experiencing the exact same thing, you know, dying next to Jesus, and one believes and one doesn't. It's mysterious, right? Same circumstances, doesn't necessarily lead to the same result. Okay, so I want to look now at the way. Okay, so we know uh, what it is a little more, but we need to know how to be born again. And what you need to know is that God does the work through Jesus. God makes us born again through Jesus. Jesus says, you can't work your way up to God. You know, adding, leaky, adding oil to your leaky engine won't like, solve the problem. It won't fix your engine. Your only hope is if God comes down. And there's irony here because like Jesus has come, like Nicodemus is looking at God come down and he doesn't yet see it. Uh, but then in verse 14, he's, he's helping Nicodemus because Nicodemus is a religious expert. So he cites another passage from the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, it's from Numbers chapter 21. It's a, he says, the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up by Moses. And that story is about Uh, when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he had rained food from the sky, manna, to feed them every day and taken care of them as they worked their way to the land that God was going to give them. And along the way, God's people start to be like, ugh, like this is horrible. You know, God is making it rain food and they're like, I don't like this food. And they're grumbling in a way that is so offensive, given what God has accomplished, the salvation that God has accomplished for them. And the result is that God sends these, it says, these serpents. And they start to get bitten by these serpents. And they cry out to God. And God, in his mercy to them, tells Moses, he says, lift up your staff, put, make a bronze serpent, and put it up on your staff. And anyone who looks on it will be healed. So anyone, you hold up this snake and anyone who looks at it will be healed. Okay, now I want you to think about, like, that's the story that Jesus is referencing here for Nicodemus. What would he have learned in this moment? And what can we learn? Uh, First of all, it's a story of really offensive rebellion and it implicates us. Like, if this is about Nicodemus looking at the serpent, then it's like, I'm one of them. My rebellion is like their rebellion. Okay, we're implicated but like in Numbers 21, that story, in, in John 6, 3.16, salvation is rooted in God's love. Like it's God that provides, God the Father provides the way to be saved. A lot of times we think of like, in the Bible, the God the Father is the mean one and Jesus is the nice one. Every, like that idea is kind of popular in society, I think. And this says, no, they're not in opposition God is the one, the Father, who desperately wants to be with us. He's the one who provides the way to be saved. 
And thirdly, and this is what is most important probably, like in Numbers 20, like in that story, life is only found when we cast our eyes on something or someone hanging on a wooden pole. You see, the story of the snake on the staff was all along pointing to the day when Jesus would hang on a wooden pole. And if you cast your gaze on him and you know what it's about, you can be born again. As you see him take your sin, all the just really offensive rebellion and the consequences of it and take it on himself. You see, he was Jesus at this point he calls himself the son of man often in the Bible. And when he says, you know, the son of man must be lifted up, he's already thinking about the day when he's going to go to die for us. Because who we are is rebels and traitors, just like Israel always was. And our only hope is for God to put forth the solution, for God to be torn apart and give us his status. And the amazing thing is he wanted to do it. He was pleased to do it because we are worth it to him. We are. And if that happens to you, uh, one of the things is that, that will happen to you is that love and patience, you'll start to have more love and you'll start to have more patience with people around you. Because if that's your story, you really can't look down on anyone, right? Like, if that's what had to happen for you to be okay, to be right, there's no, like, staring down at people and being like, what a doofus, right? You can't do it. Um, and there's a movie, anybody seen the movie? It's about five years old, Philomena. It was nominated for lots of awards. Really, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it's the story of an old lady uh, who is uh, searching for her son that she had, uh, gave up for adoption. And the interesting thing of her story is that she got pregnant in the 1950s in Ireland as a teenager, like 15 years old. Uh, obviously unplanned pregnancy. And in, in the 1950s, if you lived in Ireland, what you did in that situation was you got shipped off to the convent and you basically became like a servant in the convent while they helped you through your pregnancy and delivered your child for you. And then uh, they would eventually adopt out your child. And so um, this main character, Philomena, who's now an old lady, uh, that was her story, and the thing about it is, in the movie is that there's a reporter trying to help her find her son in the United States, and they start to do this investigation, and they find that, you know, the things going on in the convent were actually really shady, like, they treated these, like, teenage mothers kind of badly, and then they were profiting from the sale of their kids uh, to Americans, and which is really shady, and so it gets pretty intense, and at the end of the movie, this reporter who's working with Philomena, the old lady, trying to find her son, they're at the convent, and some of the nuns are still there, and one of them is named Sister Hildegard, and he just starts laying into her, like, how could you do this? And, and she gets mad, and she says this. She says, let me tell you something. I have kept my vow of chastity my whole life. Self-denial and mortification of the flesh. That's what brings us closer to God. These girls have nobody to blame but themselves and their own carnal incontinence. It's brutal, right? What did Sister Hildegard, this nun, what did she forget? What did she miss? 
But the only way you can do anything good or right is by a miracle of God's grace. Right? If you're born again, and if it took a miracle of his grace for you to do anything right with your life, you cannot condemn the people around you. You must be patient with them. You can't say, like, ugh, those people. Or, like, why can't they just get their act together? Or how could she? Uh, it doesn't fit together with the way that God saves. Because the central truth of this text is you couldn't get your act together. So being born again should make us supremely gentle and patient. But it should also, I, I want to also just say, you know, what this is saying is we can't convert our loved ones that we want to be Christians on our own. Right? Like, there's no argument, like, arguing about, like, debating uh, what's true Christianity with someone who doesn't believe can only go so far because it, God is the one who saves. You know? But what can you do? The thing you can do for the ones around you who maybe don't know Jesus is you can hold up Jesus. And that brings us to the result of being born again. Uh, the result of being born again is that we have eternal life now. We begin to experience it now. And at the end of this passage, Jesus returns to this idea of light and dark. And when we'll, we learn two more things about born-again people at the end here, in like verses 19 through 21. And the first is that born-again people are differentiated by their level of comfort with exposure. Uh, when John talks about the light coming into the world, he's talking about Jesus coming into the world and how, you know, when we get in the presence of God, we cannot help but be exposed because God know, God sees it all, right? And the reason we avoid God is because it's really uncomfortable to know that there's someone who can just see everything. Um, but the thing is, if you're born again, then you know God already knows you're messed up. Nothing he sees in you is going to be a surprise. And he came to fix everything that's messed up in us. And when the Son of Man was lifted up, when Jesus went to die, what did he say? He said, it is finished. And what that means is that it's okay if people find out that you're a mess. Really, people need to find out that you're a mess because that's the only way they may come to know God. People might be like, you need to, maybe I could be born again too. I can see that you're just as big of a mess as me. How do you have hope? Uh, because everybody wants this. And we all want to be able to be exposed but not rejected, right? To be known and loved. And we can show our friends and family that that's possible just by the way we live without fear of exposure. Uh, but a second way that born-again people are differentiated is by their obedience. And this is an important one. Obedience, there's a couple of different ways to be obedient, right? Like, obedience, there's an obedience that makes people want to love God. And there's an, also an obedience that makes people just feel bad about themselves. Um, in verse 21, it says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his, his works have been carried out by God, right? There's a way that we can live by the book, but it lacks, like, softness, and it lacks kindness, and it lacks attractiveness, just like Sister Hildegard in that movie Philomena, right? Just this, like, hardened, like, self-righteous obedience. It's what a lot of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were like. But if you're born again, 
and you live life in the light, out in the open, and you begin to live in the right way, it'll be clear that God must be the reason. You know, our family and friends should be saying, like, if Lucas can be, like, a pastor, then God must be different than I thought. Because I know, like, I know what Lucas is like, and he's not a better person than me. So what is up with this guy? Like, maybe you could tell me, like, we should... You know, this would never actually maybe happen exactly this way, but the goal of our obedience should be so that people say, like, tell me about the God that you serve. Tell me about, like, how did this happen? Because I know, like, you're not, like, fundamentally better than me, but I can see that you have life. I can see that you're different. Um, How can your obedience and your holiness be attractive in that way? Uh, when it's driven by this news that you need to be born again. And that Jesus has called you out of darkness. Uh, that there's a God who, when he sees us and our rebellion and our shame, doesn't turn away, but instead invites us to come. Uh, so uh, let, let me close by just praying that God will do that in all of our lives. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would give us Help us to taste more and more of the new life that you give, whether uh, for the first time tonight or for the thousandth time. Uh, Remind us of your love and your grace and enable us to more and more live out uh, this way of life that you call us to live. Strengthen us for it and give us endurance for it, especially as we seek to live it out here at UConn. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.